0: to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad
1: Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right welcome back everybody to the 23rd episode of the old grad podcast i'm your host jamie schleck class of 1991 and tonight our guest is anthony Toto, class of uh obviously class of 91 company a3 totes you there
0: i am thanks for having me
1: jamie uh so so glad to have you on the so glad to have you on the podcast it's been a while since we've done one it's been since july so we we had a planned break in in august because you know, the summer and vacations and whatnot and then September kinda of got away from me. It's already the third week of September and uh and we're here we are just getting it set up. So how's everything?
0: If I was doing any better I'd be you.
1: <laughs> well uh I guess uh, uh that's a good, that's a compliment I guess. Uh, so thanks thanks so much. Thanks so much. Did you get a chance to catch the game this weekend? Army uh Army defeated uh, uh their rival, or not rival, but Morgan State, we kind of beat them up pretty good, uh, 52-21. Did you get a chance to catch the game?
0: I did. Uh, I watched it with my 10- and 12-year-old son. So, yeah, we looked good.
1: It didn't start off so well, though. Like We were down initially. I don't know if you saw, like, uh, um, they had Coach Monken on that. They caught him on the way into the, into the um, locker room, and he was not happy. Did you see that?
0: He had some choice words about their backside, yep
1: yeah I, mean, I have not seen that. I mean normally he's like so supportive and he's like the most like you know kind of like uh happy-go- lucky guy, but he was not happy.
0: not at all. and so I took my boys up to the Michigan game, we went over to u t San Antonio, and the last two bowl games were in Dallas, and we got to host uh the army team along with a couple of friends of ours at a Fogo to Chow, and it was just the army teams and some wide eyed you know eight nine and then ten year old boys. With the Army team, not the night before. You got to go two nights in before because that's the meet of Palooza. But yeah, so they they love their Army football.
1: That's awesome. So so you have two boys. What are their ages again? Ten and twelve, you said.
0: Yeah, now ten and twelve.
1: And their names are,
0: Uh, older is Anthony Joseph, but we didn't want to stigmatize him, so we called him Joe. Uh And then the the ten year old's name is Jack.
1: Cool. And so, what are they? What are they up to? Like, they're what grades are they in? And what they doing? Sports? What's What's their whole sort of situation? Yeah, they're
0: spring babies. They're smart like their mom, so they're gifted and talented. Courses and any sport with a ball. So uh, the older got to go up to Cooperstown. He hit eight home runs uh, this spring, and that was the one thing I wanted him to do for me, for him, right? Which Dad hit the top of the wall. You never knocked one out. Uh, So both playing travel baseball, both play basketball. The older guys playing, you know, full contact football, and the little guys playing flag.
1: So, what do you think? I mean, obviously, you're a football player. You grew up playing football. You're a big rugby guy, and everything else. I mean, youth sports seems to be kind of gra- gravitating away from contact football. Is that still? Is that still a big, the, the big sport that it used to be in in Texas where you live? Yeah,
0: interestingly, Jamie. Uh, so, a buddy of mine, the '79 West Point grad, JB Dollison, and his best friend happens to be Oliver Luck. Oliver Luck was a backup for the Oilers, and he happens to be the father of one Andrew Luck, quarterback, recently retired for the Indianapolis uh, Colts. So um, I, will, I will tell you that um, my, height, my son's team is 22 strong out of 300 boys in seventh grade, so far different than when I played football in North Jersey and, and Northwest Ohio. Uh, we had a much higher percentage of folks going out. And I think there is a little bit of helicopter parenting going on.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I love football. I grew up playing football, played football in high school. You know, I would have played on the on the Army team if I was, you know, good enough, but fast enough, strong enough, but I wasn't, so I got cut. But, um, you know, it. it uh, I, I love football. And I think, I mean – Look, I, there's a lot that happens in the NFL, but those guys are immense, right? I mean, that that is a whole different sort of kettle of fish than I think high school football. I would rather, because my kids all played soccer, and um, two concussions and a bunch of uh, collisions. I think soccer is far more dangerous a sport than than youth football, actually, in pads.
0: I certainly think my friends who have. Uh, children that play soccer and more of them are, are girls than boys, just, you know, not don't have a big data set, but it's that when you slap your head back on the turf, it, that it's much easier to get concussed that way. And I do think there's a lot more information on it now than there was when we were younger, the whole heads up tackling. Uh, but, you know, we waited. I, you know, I talked to some of our classmates that have informed opinions because of roles that they've had in prior business lives. And uh, we were not in any rush. To make sure that they got out there and they tend to be on the bigger side so um, so far so good
1: so we're live on our facebook page we had a couple of people that have joined us i see we got 12 classmates currently signed on listening so uh, hello to terry rice and paul Smolcheck. they're on there I'm trying to see who the other ones are i can't quite download it here i gotta gotta see here It'll come up in a second who's who's on there so we got some people listening which is great uh, reconnected here with with uh, with our classmates um and so uh so 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 give me the rundown, Toes. You're living in you live in in Houston? Is is that where you are?
0: Yeah, we live right out inside the Houston inner loop. We live within a little uh little town that we have our own police and fire and uh our own little you know, all our little amenities and uh the taxes, it's property tax to back all that up. But, you know, a little bit different for me from where I grew up, Jamie, you know, I reared in in, in North Jersey and then sixth grade on in Northwest Ohio, kind of bedroom towns where it's a great place to be from. And Houston continues to threaten Chicago to replace it as the third largest city in the U S. And we have a lot of net migration, most of it legal and a lot of great job creation down here. So the, the economy has been booming. We were down in Texas for around 12 years.
1: So, uh, you married how long?
0: 20 years. Uh, one of my best sales jobs. Anybody will tell you that that's met my bride. I've met yours. So I know you've got some moxie in you as well. So, um,
1: and she might be listening. Know, this, so thank you for that.
0: Yeah. Well, right. Hey, I just said, you know, and neither of us thought <laughs> we didn't have great examples of how marriages would last 30 or 40 years in either of our families. So, uh, we decided to wait a little while to, uh, to, to have children, you know, I wanted to make sure she liked me first. So, uh, we had plenty of time in Chicago and then San Francisco. Dual income, no kids, and lots of great ski trips to Europe and to Canada and uh, art parts unknown in Colorado. Before we started, we settled down. It really took us coming down to Texas. I have one son that was born in Dallas and one that was born down here in Houston.
1: And how'd you guys meet?
0: Uh, you know, interestingly, shockingly, uh, you know, West Point grad buddy uh, Chris Lepp uh, was working the corporate finance group at GE. And we went to a Yankees-White Sox game, and I was rooting for the enemy, Uh, my Yankees, against uh, a bunch of Sox fans down at the old Comiskey field. Uh, And then that was kind of a group get-together. And then uh, Chicago folks are famous for meeting their significant other at a block party called St. Pat's. And that was our first uh, date, per se. And and then it was interesting. I got some... She was on a rotational program, so Florida girl who worked at GE, Atlanta, Philly, Chicago, uh, London, Chicago, and then Stanford. And she was getting ready to leave, and a buddy of mine said, you know, Anthony, you're always pretty positive. You don't seem very happy. I said, ah, there's this girl I'm dating, it's too soon, but she's moving back for six months in Chicago. guy named John DeBlasio, class 89, he said, just give her an open-ended ticket. And it was one of those magical pieces of advice, Jamie. Right? Like, how do you not put pressure, but say, "Hey, if you want to come back, when you're ready to come back, come back." And so, after that six-month last
1: tour of duty, she came back, and um, so we dated you, we,
0: for four seasons.
1: You were yeah. a civilian so, at this point, so so you were out of the. I was
0: already. I was already out. Yeah, I'd done my reserves. So I did two two platoon commands, company command, and then six and seven years in the reserves, National Guard, working at the the Uh, But so at that time right around the time we were, I was still in the reserves, I guess, but yeah, I was, I was far off active duty.
1: So to her is, is the, military just like a completely like foreign animal? Well, interestingly,
0: her best friend married a guy that thinks I'm nuts because he had a reserve command at UCF and it took him a while. He's now working for the secretary of army in a different capacity as I am. But, um, and so it's, only, it's foreign in that she has not had a put up with, You'd be in, you know, Headquarters six Element. But she's it's, she's been around enough of it that she's glad she met me after the fact.
1: And you're another thing, you are a CASA. Tell us about that. What, is, what does CASA mean? It's a civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army, a position created
0: in 1920. Uh, I was the 100th CASA ever appointed. Uh, now they're doubling the strength of it. And think of it this way, Jamie, don't check my math. My memories got creative over the years. But post-World War II, we're a country of around 160 million people. And 15 million people were either actively invite, involved in the fight or the support of it, like Air Guard or something. Now, fast forward, we're a country of 330 million people, and there's only a million people in the standing military. So they decided over time they were going to ramp up the costs because four or five prongs to the duty. It's no pay on my deathbed. I hope to have total consciousness. It a, is a, a position that's three-star equivalent for protocol purposes, and you're a, you're a mouthpiece, a talking head for the SEC Army been a war for 18 years it's not as popular in some parts of the country as it is say here in houston one of my duties is uh similar to what a casualty assistance officer did in the military if a we lose someone they come back in a flag draped coffin i go and meet the coffin the service member and their family at ellington field here um, on behalf of the secretary i help the recruiting command and the recruiting command today is far different we have very very low unemployment we're not looking for those go-to-army, go-to-jail types. The new fight is uh, algorithms and machine learning. People are more, much more likely to drive a, a desktop or a laptop computer than they are a tank or, a, or um, a Humvee. And so we're looking for a different type of soldier. And that requires more of a community approach to figuring out how are we going to identify them and show them that the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines are good path to service. Then we have to help those land well, because if they don't land well when they're getting out, the TAP, the Transition Assistance Program, the Soldier for Life, we're, help there, we're, we're there to help them bolster that effort. And then specifically down here in Texas, we have the Army Futures Command. And that's, you know, we're, we're revamping our five main weapon systems for the first time that we're doing any of them really since 1974. And we're doing all of them. And there's a $38 billion, with a B annual spend right now. The majority of that's going to flow through Austin, Texas.
1: So what, what five, what, I mean, What are, you said five, five weapon systems. What, what five systems are you talking about?
0: Uh, yeah, there's no testing, Schleck. You can't, so, I, you know, it's the M1A1 tank, it's the field <laughs> artillery, it's the rotary aircraft. Um, it, it, I mean, you think of it, it broad right. brush. I don't know how they're characterizing the MLRS as it compared to directed energy. But so everything that we saw on the battlefield, um, they're revamping it. I don't mm. know when the last time was you were in a Bradley but it looks far different or talk, you know, it, it now looks like the movie, the matrix or, or Tom Cruise fighting future crime. Well, they got are screens and touch screens.
1: Are Bradley's getting phased out completely for the striker? I mean, I would, I thought that was this, I thought that was the whole plan it was the striker brigades are going to replace the rallies. I, I
0: think in, 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 in hope, but we're also doing is We're competing against, you remember when, when, when Iraq went down, the Marines were there with an amphibious landing vehicle that's got a range of 15 miles. That was 223 miles from where they landed. So they, they, they they're figuring out what can where can we do more with less, and then how do we cross-utilize some of those vehicles in our hands or the fa- hands of the allies with whom we're supporting. So it I don't know that there's anything definitively done, Jamie. And there's a lot cross-service. We're fighting. You know, where does the Where does cyber start and stop? And where does the space command begin? There's an innovation command that's actually headquartered at Ellington Field that that is reinforcing everything we're doing at Army Futures. Uh, You know, it's probably no surprise they built it somewhat in close proximity to NASA. If you go down to NASA, they're doing unbelievable work with exoskeletons. So the things that would help you carry more of a load, we have 80 to 90 pounds on the typical infantryman that's out excuse me, and about away from his his vehicle. So how are they going to sustain that sort of load in, in an austere environment with uh, varying degrees of weather out there? So they're, they're looking at all components of that uh, when they think about weapons systems writ large.
1: So we should say say hello to a few, a few more classmates that have joined us. So Matt Lewis is on the line, Alex Porcelli, Brad Hamaker uh rob Blomquist, jeff simpson um i mentioned terry rice and Smolcheck. uh chris uh, mckenzie's on the line and i saw tim thatcher's on the line dave romano who else we got here a few of these names you probably recognize a couple couple prepsters that were there um absolutely so so just going back to the whole purpose of this thing you know the, the reason why we created this uh, Old Grab podcast. Oh, Alex Rogers too, Buck Rogers. Um, We created this Old Grab podcast because this was an opportunity. I knew a friend that that had the equipment and and has a small radio station that I was able to utilize to use some of his equipment. And I was finding myself as the uh, class giving officer, calling people, reconnecting, talking to them about class giving and having these really rich conversations with people and saying, wow, if there was only a way for me to spread the the knowledge, learning, and the and the camaraderie, and the and the catching up of, of old times, uh, it would be really it would be really great in terms of um, uh, our class uh, cohesiveness and and fostering those those connections. And so that's that's how the whole old grad podcast was was born. Actually, I remember talking over talking over with uh, with uh, with um, uh, Rob Blumquist. Actually, we we're talking about I think we had just gone to. Um, Mission Continues Breakfast or something on the Intrepid, and I was telling him about this idea. He's like, that's a great idea. And he's like, you should have John Keenan on as your first guest because we all have that common memory of, of him asking that, that, that crazy question to uh, General Schwarzkopf. That was such a great time. So, so the, the purpose of the O'Grab podcast is to, to foster communications uh, among our classmates, to get us connected closer to West Point, is to raise awareness around our class gift, and finally is to also, um, to remember our fallen classmates and to make sure that they continue to live through our words. And so, uh, Anthony, have you listened to any of the other, uh, O'Grab podcasts?
0: I did. I, I listened in to the first one you did with John. And then I listened in to my friend, Matt Lewis's discussion of relaunching his book and you picking on my coworker, Brian Sharp for, you know, his dress at a breakfast formation, um, uh, made sure to reinforce that, uh, listened to Kevin Berry, uh, yeah, a prepster, uh, a couple other prepsters you shouted out. My friend, uh, uh, you did shout out to one other A3 guy. Chris McKenzie was uh, uh, a fellow armadillo back in the day with me in, in uh, third reg. So, yeah. But, um, look, I love what you're doing, Jamie. And I think, I, uh, you know, I, I it's easy for you to make your mark because you're following me. And I did what I could with it. We were just getting out of the gate and trying to bring some awareness to the fact that our institution's pivoting a little bit. And there's a bit more of an expectation that our alumni who have benefited from their time uh, at the academy and probably look back on, hopefully look back on it with great reverence. And, you know, one of my one of our classmates said to me, was somebody that was getting poked at by development, and he said the guy didn't do it very well. and The guy didn't know him very well, but he said to him, you know, hey, has West Point done more for you or have you done more for it? and it's something i've reflected on um ever since
1: yeah i think i mean to to a person everybody you speak to that I, I i don't think there's very, there's very very few people who would say they regret going to west point but almost every single person says oh yeah i've got a story about how there's a time in my life where i had to call upon something i learned at west point or some something i learned in the army or you know some kind of like knowing that i that i've been you know through something else that was going to Help me move forward in it, in, in some kind of a life challenge. I mean, I know that's certainly been the case for myself, and uh, I think it's one of the things that bonds us all together. I mean, where else would you have an institution like West Point, which is a you know fairly elite academic institution, uh, where everybody spends four years going through the same set of trials, and then they go into the first at least the first five years of their professional life all doing the same thing. And so that builds, that creates what I think is just an unrivaled level of, um, network and, um, camaraderie. That is something that's very special.
0: It's well said, fire forged steel.
1: So, um, uh, so, so what are you doing professionally? I mean, what, what's, 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 what's your work deal?
0: Uh, so most of my life, you know, we've I've been in this position where I've given advice, and I you know I, I hearken back to the times where uh, part of what you just said. We go through this four years where first we figure out how to follow before we just you know they're gonna and charge us with a leadership role, and then they you graduate and you're a second lieutenant, and you might as well be a plebe. You got responsibility without authority again. Uh, you get out of the military. Uh, and uh, you know, I was thrust into an office that looked a little bit like Gilbert and everybody thought I worked for them. And, you know, so you go from my last duty station, I'm, i down in your, your Dari, Kuwait, working on the Iraq border, taking out a bunch of mines, have a bunch of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis working for me at the ripe old age of 23, 24. And, you know, 600 of them, they're indentured servants to the Kuwaitis and are hoping for citizenship in 1993. And, you fast forward and you're in an office and literally everybody thinks that, you know, you're the guy they're going to dump everything on their desk. And it's, I, you know, it's one of those, those times where you think, all right, well, do I want to continue to do this? And can I make more out of the interface that I'm going to have with people? So I went into financial services very early on mid, mid 1990s. And I worked in a closely held family business where I'd like to say, maybe not in front of all of them, but, I wasn't part of the nepotistic inner founding circle. I was a senior non-family member. So the avuncular kind uncle role model. And from there, I went to work for a little bit bigger business. The, the second one went through an ESOP, so a sale to the employees. And then I went to work with a group of people where we went through an IPO and uh, we went public. And that was good for some people, maybe not all of us. And went to another company, went through a venture buyout and found myself around 20 years ago, you know, stepping back at, you know, ripe old age of 31, let's call it and saying, you know, what do I really want to do? And I I enjoyed financial services. I enjoyed uh, giving advice and being part of a team and um, the, the, the aspect of leadership that I'd call servant leadership, just putting others in front of you and putting their interests in front of yours. And the big F word in that is fiduciary. You know, can we can I literally put somebody else's interest in front of my own? So in in short, swift, without getting into much of the details of it, Jamie, that's what I've done for 20 years.
1: And so you are managing money for people, basically, for wealthy people.
0: It's money, but it's, you know, it tends to be more complex than that. Right. So there's a complexity of the person, the entity and the investment. We're looking over. Uh, and kind of coordinating their legal services, their tax services. We're not given tax advice or legal advice, but I have attorneys on my team and CPAs on my team. The occasional PhD will poke their head into a meeting, uh, a bunch of CFAs. So, yeah, a lot of portfolio management. But a lot of it is how do we figure out, you know, when, when you're around this immense wealth and you're in the top 1% or dare, you know, say the top 0.1% and you have tens of millions of dollars, how do you, how do you ensure that? And this is, I'm saying this a little tongue-in-cheek. How do you ensure your children enjoy the blessing of a skinned knee, right? So that we, we, want them to do, we want them to have enough money so they can do anything, but not so much that they do nothing. And while history doesn't repeat itself, it echoes a little bit. So how do you help them learn vicariously and figure out what some best practices are? Nobody wants to raise a trust fund, baby, or I like to say a trustafarian. You know, they just, where they don't have a sense of self because in dad or mom's good intention of trying to do well by them, they did for them. And the, the child does not had the same sets of life experiences. And, you know, I mean, I think you and I were talking about uh, sports and competition recently. And man, do I love watching my kids play. Um, and I don't care so much if they win. I want to make sure that they they're either going to win or they're going to learn. And we have to let them, you know, we have to let them do that.
1: I love that stuff. I love sports. I love watching my kids play. I just was thinking about my little, my little baby girl, Clary, uh, Mary Claire. She's 15 or 14. She's a freshman in high school now. And, and uh, she plays soccer, and um, and then my my son Luke is, uh, I mean, there's a finite number of games that you get to you get to go to, right? There's a finite number. It's whatever that number is. It's it's definitely not infinite. And so you know my my son Luke is a junior in high school. My my daughter Mary Claire is a freshman. And there's like you know, however many games left. So I try not to miss them at all. I I, I schedule that stuff first and foremost to to, to not miss that. But I said to, you know Mary Claire is probably the one. Is the most likely to go to West Point if, if of my kids, some of my four kids. And I was talking to her about, like, you know, don't be weak out there, a bit jokingly, you know, don't be weak. And she said, Yeah, I know, Dad. The road to victory is paved with the skulls of the weak. I said, That's right. That is absolutely <laughs> right. Don't be weak. Right, uh, but I, I remember seeing that on uh, posted in DPE over uh, Major Jansik's uh, door. The the road yeah. to victory is paved by the skulls of the week. I just, just always rem- I just always remember that that quote. So funny.
0: The um yeah I uh, my older got to go up to Cooperstown this summer and uh he hit eight home runs this year and it was the one thing I wanted him to do for me for him because I never did it and it's very binary and you know he probably peppered the outfield wall. Ten or twelve times this year before he got his first, and then they came in quick succession. And I watched him as he puffed out his chest. And I'm and I was thinking, look at him. He's. And then I just kind of looked down, and I was doing the same thing from the outfield sense. so he couldn't hear me. Because there's a lot of embarrassment that comes with dad, you know, popping off.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, that's the other side of it too, though. I mean, I've coached wrestling, I've coached football. The worst. The worst part of the human experience is parents getting overly involved with their kids' sports, is the, without question. And and I think wrestling is number one. Wrestling is number one. When you have people getting all fired up over wrestling,
0: I love and wrestling.
1: Well, I love wrestling. It's hard right to on.
0: get away from it, right? Like you have to be there. You're you're at the corner of the mat. I mean, I put myself behind the, the right field outfield wall because I'm not going to be quiet. So I might as well be far away.
1: Yeah, my kids don't wrestle anymore. Actually, my son Luke is a basketball player, which is where I was today when I was talking to you on the pre-call. I was at a at a basketball tournament, and um, so it's, it, it's just great. It's the best thing in the world watching kids play sports for sure, and do other things, of course, too. Not everybody plays sports, but uh, yeah. Well,
0: again, I I married up, so my wife was merit scholar, and mine are both gifted and talented courses. And I always say, "So when's your homework?" And they just points at his head. And he's dad. I'm a genius
1: yeah that's like it,
0: i'm so happy you took after your mother right hey so i'll talk about my three summers and staff with him james
1: so yeah. shout out to a couple other people that joined us mike Parker. mike Parker joined us do you know mike mike parker uh
0: i i know it only how you pronounce it the first time yeah yeah, Glad yeah you're with us mike
1: yeah and uh dwight Ducasny and kirk swanson are also on the line so uh we got we got a we got a party of people people listening. So you guys can just pepper in questions into the comment feed if you want to ask questions of Anthony and about what he's doing and his uh and his uh family life and business life and some crazy stories. There's probably somebody out there that's got some, some crazy story that they can uh chat about and we can embarrass our, our classmate uh, totes. Um so totes um you is you mentioned before that you moved from New Jersey uh, to Ohio. What what precipitated that move?
0: Um, my father and my uncle both went to Fairleigh Dickinson at night, and, Knight, uh, and the, between the two of them, they worked at Owens Illinois for 82 years, and wow. those were corporate reloads, middle management uh, on a prop plane out of Teterboro into hot spots like Alton, Illinois, and Toledo, Ohio. So there's nothing super fancy about it, but it was one of those things that. It, it thrust you into an environment uh, on a different playground with a different tetherball game or kickball game or basketball game, and you had to reassimilate. And it was decent training for getting up to West Point, as you said earlier. It's uh, it's a lot of things, uh, but it certainly is a place where you're going to go through a, a similar experience to the other thousand folks you're going to call a classmate, regardless of the background they came from. So. I uh, had an opportunity to live in Ohio twice, New Jersey twice, and Illinois, all before sixth grade.
1: And you got to know about West Point by being close to it when you are in New Jersey originally?
0: Yeah, my, my grandfather had tickets to the old Red Blake teams that were really good. My gran- grandfather had an embroidery cutting business in Hudson County, New Jersey, employed half the town at one time or another, uh, seven kids. You know, he worked at Pratt Whitney, kind of the technologist of of his generation, Jamie, you know, working on big machines that cut cloth and drapes and driving, uh, you know, a truck that had a slide on the side before there was a UPS or a uh, uh, a FedEx to deliver something. You know, he was making it and taking it to the city. Um, And so we had gone to football games growing up. I had one uncle that played football at St. Peter's and they kind of all encouraged me that We were excellent high school athletes, and we should leverage that to get in the best school that we could and then focus on academics. And that was a piece of it. And then my high school coach, my head coach, about 100 pounds ago, I caught 75 passes in two years. And my high school coach played on the 1949 small school national championship at Bowling Green with my position coach, Jack Becker, up at school. And they were also Jack Harbaugh, the father of Jim and John, one of whom is going to be looking for a job soon after army went up to Michigan and punched them in the mouth. Um, they all played on the same team and it's amazing the past, you know, how we get to where we were, but I had seven mid American football, you know, conference scholarship offers. And I had like books and a little bit of money to go to Michigan or Northwestern, but not a full ride. And um, I was not, I didn't, I did not have the means that I was going to be able to pay my way through uh, one of those, better schools and get through in four years without holding down a couple jobs. So, um, you know, and, and that what it resulted in was me going to prep school, which was a great, you know, PG year post high school. And it did a lot of growing up, uh, in one year down at exit one Oh five.
1: You know, I was thinking the other day, I wish that I had had the foresight to just go there and like meet people who are prepsers. When I was a when I was a senior in high school and I was knew that I was going to be going to West Point because I, would gotten the early admission. That would have been cool to go down there. I did I did get a chance to meet doing the APFD. I met. I remember meeting Backs, who ended up being one of my best friends. But um, we didn't get along too well when he was grading me on the APFD. I thought he, he thought he <laughs> cheated me out of a couple pull ups. But um, that would have been cool to be down there. I mean, I know I've listened to these these prep school stories about you know you and Born Dog and Noto and. All those, you know, it's everybody, it sounded like it was just such a great time down there.
0: Uh, it was, you know, I mean, think about it. Uh, it was full force, English and math. And then as quickly as possible, as soon as we were done on Friday, if you didn't have football practice, you weren't weightlifting. How can you get to D.C. where it was 18 uh, to drink a beer? Uh, and Mike Lazowski had a dad and then a stepdad that were both Sergeant Majors down to Fort Meyer. And they used to clean out the top of the barracks to make room for us. And walking across the key bridge into Georgetown, um, some very fond memories. I remember the Sergeant Major pulled out a picture and he took a picture of, there was eight or nine of us on a trip. And he said, you knuckleheads, you know, about half of you will be lucky to get, you know, to your first year up at West Point. And eight of the nine of us graduated, which is, you know, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, there's normally a higher level of attrition. It wasn't because we were the smartest eight or nine in the bunch. Uh, but very, very good memories. Uh, a lot of, you know, get some of the post-high school, uh, what you need to get out of your system. Uh, it, You know, I think the military writ large, it retards your maturation. And there's a lot in that statement. It's just you, you, everybody does what they say they're going to do around you. And there's a lot of suppressed things you otherwise might get to exercise at college and You know, a a year that was great.
1: My son was asking me about it today. We're talking on the uh, in the car because he actually went to the army uh, basketball camp. He was like the for the recruited athletes. I actually saw uh, our classmate Rick Rooney there. His son was also at the same camp, so we're hanging out talking. And uh, he was asking me all about what you know. My son Luke was asking me all about West Point. I have like this very kind of like measured conversation about because I don't want to be like overselling it and I don't want to undersell it. I want to basically be like as neutral as possible. So I keep telling him like, listen, you got to make your own decision. You got to go up there for your, for your visit. You got to figure the whole thing out. And uh, he's like, what about the prep school? I said, oh, I said, the prep school sounds like <laughs> such a good time. I said, you should just go to prep school for a year and then go someplace, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: and the irony of that, Jamie, but at the end of my prep school year, I did get a full ride to Northwestern. Uh-huh. and you think about that now at the time, all I was thinking is I watched those guys get pounded in the rain in front of 102,000 up in Michigan by 37. And I'm like, ah, why do I want to go there? Right. But you know, if it, these things are put in our path for, for different reasons, your point about being measured, I brought both my boys up to a football camp that our classmate Mark West has mm-hmm. very under marketed for anybody that's got teen or preteen. They get to play in Mikey Stadium. There was 15 or 16 kids in the camp. And they got time with Mark and a couple GAs for four, three or four days. And I think they made it overnight this year. We did it a couple of years ago. And that was an interesting touch. I almost thought, to your point, Jamie, I don't want to push too hard, right? Because it, they got to go there because they want to go. So we went out. I had a buddy of mine that's on the Air Force Academy uh, board set up a tour for us last spring. We're going to ski up at Steamboat and we flew through College Station. I went to see John Cook and Lance Kohler uh, down in Colorado Springs, and we go and we tour the Air Force Academy the next day. Well, it's their recognition week. They do it around spring break, and we're up, for those of you who've been up there, you're up in the chapel, it's two-tiered, we're up on the top level, and these firsties are working, these folks. It reminded me like a Sandhurst train. They're doing all the stuff with them, but it's pretty physical. Wheelbarrow carries, picking each other up, firemen, back and forth, push ups, sit ups. And my, at the time, my, I guess he's nine, my older is 12 now, looks at me and goes, Dad, do you have to do stuff like this at Northwestern? (laughs) And I said, No. And he said, Well, why the heck would I go here? This is crazy. You know, and you could just, as we we know, our kids are all different. And the stuff that we put ourselves through, um, you got to self select into it.
1: And I, I, I am so glad that I did. I'm, I'm as I think you are as well. I mean, you know, Northwestern Michigan. I mean, that would, you, you those are great schools, but they're just great schools. you don't have that experience on top of that, you know.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, I look. I've, I spent the last twelve years setting up family offices. So we're going in. You know, the median clients got forty-five million dollars with us. The average has a million, Minimum had twenty-five. And we go in and I worked with a Harvard PhD and a guy that went to MIT and a guy that went to Georgia Tech, one that went to UT Austin, a woman that went to one of the six sister schools. And the only thing they ever talked about was, how's West Point? Tell me, tell me what that was like. You know, and literally I'm sitting with a bunch of people, most of whom are my senior that are sitting there with their hands folded because they went to Harvard or MIT.
1: Yeah, you know, and you listen to a lot of people, too, that that got accepted to west point or the naval academy or the air force academy or coast guard academy and then they went someplace else and then they talk about it like later on and say you know i i was accepted and i decided to go to this other place i went to wherever johns hopkins and i always wondered like what would my life be like if i had if i had done that you know so there's i think that there's there's also there's that whole universe of people that were like fully qualified went to a different school and then and then they decided to um you know, and, and then and then they didn't go to West Point. I always think about that. But, you know, speaking of camps, when I was actually at the basketball camp this summer, there is a walkway that goes from the Hollister Center over to Mikey Stadium. I don't know if you know that, but there's like this new walkway that's like it's an elevated walkway. Uh, yeah,
0: Holly and Mark took me over there. It's unbelievable. Mark Mark walks all his campers through there. Oh, do they Talk a little bit about that, so Jamie. It's, it's, um, people should know about it.
1: Yeah. So it's the class of 1956 class gift. And they have this walkway that goes back, you know, from one side to the other. And I met a guy, actually, I was at the class leaders conference a few few, a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, actually. Uh, and he's from the class of 56. He's like, oh, well, you know, our big concern is that nobody actually gets to use it. Nobody gets to actually see it because, you know, it's rare that you, you know, don't just walk outside to go from Hollander to Mikey or Mikey to Hollander. Like, why would you go there? And like, correct. But um, when you, I encourage you, if you happen to be at West Point, make a point of going there. Make a point of walking through that that, that walkway because it chronicles the history and the journey of the class of '56 <clears throat> from you know Vietnam all the way to the Gulf War. And you know General Schwarzkopf was class of '56. General Palmer was fit, class of '56. Um, there was uh, sh- there's two or three other. Um, significant uh, general officers, too. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think General Jawin also was there. But um, it occurred to me, too, I was thinking about this, like uh, there's a lot of similarities between the class of 56 and the class of 91. Because when you think about it, you know, the, these these uh, young lieutenants were commissioned in a post-war peacetime army in 1956. It was pre-Vietnam and you know there was some downsizing there was all the things that we probably experienced as young officers right and then by the time vietnam kicks off they're all like senior captains or majors which is exactly what we were uh you know our classmates when when uh you know post 9-11 and um and then they led the army you know from 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 that point forward and and including being the um commander of uh of um Desert Storm and um, Desert Shield and as well as, um, you know, the superintendent of the, of the Academy and um, just really interesting kind of thinking through the, what it was like for them. And uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, the thing that just, I just gives me chills thinking about it was they have a letter that was written be t- from um, uh, one of their classmates. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Celeste, Lieutenant Celeste. He was a major, Major Celeste writing a letter to his son um, about duty, and why duty required of him to be in Vietnam, and, um, and why he couldn't be home with, for his son, and unfortunately, uh, Major Celeste uh, was killed in action, and uh, it's just very powerful reading that, you know, thinking about, like, you know, here I was with my son at a basketball camp, you know, thanks to the, you know, the um, sacrifices of those that have gone before me, it's just very, very powerful, moving, moving place. I was, I was very emotional, you know, brought the tears there. Um, just, you know, that one summer day. So anyway. Yeah,
0: I found, and, and I think as you walk from there, Jamie, off, uh, into where the, the weight room is and the facilities the, near, near the football stadium, done a really nice job of memorializing some of the great leaders and athletes. And I, it was an interesting, it's an intro, interesting visual history. And we all learn a little bit differently. Not everything comes from a textbook. And I think particularly when you're trying to share this with others, the West Point experience, it's an interesting walk to take so they can get a a kind of a sense of, of who some of the leaders were that they maybe haven't heard the names of.
1: So let's go back to 1987. I mean, obviously you got recruited. um, You're at the prep school and you're a, Kind of a big name there, right? I mean, like in terms of expectations of uh, what was going to happen with it, w- with the team.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things uh, a buddy of mine sent me a uh, the first game we played was Holy Cross, uh, our our, our plea beer. and I was the guy that they had where there was a Holy Cross guy that was supposed to be play both ways, Gordy Lockbaum, was a preseason Heisman Trophy candidate, and in the program for the first game, there was four guys listed that were going to have an impact on the army football team as plebes, It was Anthony Noto, Otto Leon, Brian McWilliams, and Anthony DiToto. And three of them did have a very big impact. And, uh, you know, I wound up banging up my knee a little bit. Um, and then really struggling with academics as a beanhead, and, uh, you know, got sent home, go off the big boy tables, if you will. Um, and then was told to come back and try out in the spring. And I chose not to do that. So, um, you know, and and it was at that point that I probably most deeply considered, uh, taking the full ride and going to Northwestern, but it it already had been programmed into me. I think it would have been harder to leave than it would to stay at that point, even without football, which you would have told me that in 1987, I would have told you you you're crazy, but, um, the indoctrination began the, you know, the, um, part of, Part of just the, sort of the, I think what we collectively would refer to as the esprit de corps and embracing the suck with a collective of folks that seemed a lot like me, um, I bought in.
1: So you say one of your most cherished memories was uh, getting an A in plebe of English the second time. What, what do you mean? Did you take that <laughs> in step?
0: Yeah, well, so what happened was I got an A on my first paper. And okay. I remember, I, I won't name the, the professor, but he was quickly separated after this. Um, I got, I, I, she asked me to write for the spiral. I think it was called. And she said, thought it thought it'd be really cool to have a football player writing for the, uh, spiral. And I said, "Ma'am, with all due respect, you know, this is the one class that I don't really have to work hard at. Like my mom's an English teacher. Uh, I didn't realize it skipped generations at that point yet from grammar and stuff. And she like said, I really strongly encourage you to write. And I said, "Ma'am, with all due respect, I respectfully decline." And I failed my next three papers. And, uh, my uncle died, who was a mentor to me, that second semester. And uh, I also, besides failing, I just stopped doing homework. And uh, not that I was very good at it in the first place. I never really learned to study until about, yeah, 12th, step summer, I believe, year. But when they did a review, Colonel Hoy called me, and he was the head, department head. And he said, "Toto, now this first paper may not be an A, or may not be an A, but this, these last three weren't Fs. Like, What did you do to her? Like, what did, like, he thought there was something really going on there. And, and I just said, she asked me to write for the spiral. And I guess she had asked somebody else to write. And she was not a grad, asked somebody else to write for the spiral. And I, so I got to retake the course with Colonel Hoy over the summer. And he asked us to write 50% of the class grade, Jamie, was. In Milan Kundera's book, The Unbearable Lightness of the Being, not like I remember this, right? But he said there's two types of, you know, men in this world. The man that's in search of the perfect woman, the man that's in search of the one, one thousandth uh, part of a woman that makes her different from every other, which one are you and why? So at least, you know, he, he believed that I was a little bit discerning and I understood myself. So I was pretty happy with that A, because absent her doing that, um, it, you know, it being viewed as she did something, it crossed the line. Uh, I may not have been graduating with the class, so I got the full cadet experience. I don't think I ever went home for more than like a long weekend during my cadet summers.
1: So you failed. So you went to STAP for for English, you f- but you passed calculus and everything else. No,
0: well, I I, so I failed physics. I thought I wanted to be a physics major, so I had I had loaded my courses up front, and I failed physics, uh, problems and statistics. In English, um, so yeah, I mean, I, so I spread it around a little bit, but you know, I got, uh, you know, they wipe those out and they replace it. It's not like they average them. No, no, I get, so, it.
1: I get it. But wait, yeah. hold on. Did, did you go to STAP every every year? Every year, every. So you're four STAP stars, four, yeah, three, three. Oh, th- three. I guess yeah, yeah. three. Yeah. Please, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you managed, you managed to escape first year without having to snap right? Correct. Do, do you remember, graduate on time. you know what's crazy? Think about that Cow English. Remember that we had classmates that failed Cow English's firsties and were not going to graduate because they do STAP? You remember oh, that? Oh, I
0: went back for their late graduation. I mean, a couple of my prep school buddies. So we drove back, Joe Tonona and I drove back in to watch them graduate um, a month later.
1: But what yeah. bullshit was that? I mean, that's like, that should be like an easy course, right? Suddenly, remember that, that first year, like suddenly the English department ended up being like real a bunch of hard asses and failing people for stuff. And I remember the police were having to memorize all kinds of bullshit. Um, like they, they had to memorize like four long poems or something. That was, crazy. you know,
0: look, as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, they, they, they brought the, the heat when we were police, but that was me. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I yeah. Hear, hear you. I remember, uh, poor Rob Dill, poor Rob Dill, because Rob Dill, he, he's like, you know, hometown hero from Kansas. He's got like, I think like thirty people come to this graduation, right? From all the way from Kansas. Yeah. His high school teachers, you know, coaches, parents, cousins, da 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 da. And he gets his notice that he's gotta do stap and he's not gonna graduate with us. And it was like devastating. It was unbelievable, right? Like how could this possibly happen? And Rob Dill is like a great student, right? He just got screwed by some, you know, idiotic uh Um, you know grading system and thankfully I think enough people failed that they they went home and they complained to congressman or something so they had a complete regrading of the tests right and he went from an F to like a C plus and he graduated with us but only after a lot of just you know hand wringing and pulling your hair out um, he fortunately he was one of the guys uh, and gals that got lucky so but that was crazy the um
0: well I'm sorry that not all of them got to have the full cadet experience like I did.
1: Yeah, you see that's the thing. I now, now listen. I'm I, I'm I guess I'm glad that I, I would have loved to go to the prep school. Uh, that's an experience I would have loved to have, but I probably wouldn't have wanted to do it for an entire year. I think that STAP. I never did STAP. I came close. I came uh, narrowly close a couple times uh, to to not doing so. Like a uh, plebe calculus, I think could have actually buried me, but I didn't. I got I managed to get through it, but um. But that's a great experience too, right? Stap is actually like a good time there.
0: Oh, it was, you know, there's nobody there. And so the pressure cooker is down. But I guess particularly that plebe summer, as crazy as it sounds. um, So you get to work out. um, You can eat like a human being. And um, you're focused on a course. And that's all you're doing. So there's Uh, if somebody struggles after that in that course, then I'd have less sympathy for him. But yeah, I, and, you know, had some formative relationships for him there with other people that had to work a little bit harder than maybe uh, the median person in our class to get through the whole cadet experience.
1: Was Paul Haggerty there?
0: I don't know if Hags was there or not. Not somebody that I necessarily, I mean, I knew Hags, but not from staff.
1: I thought that I somebody told me he did stab, which which uh, maybe he did. Uh, and, poor you hacks. Know,
0: I don't want to tell anyone else's memory. I, yeah, uh, I just, some some people don't like to discuss it. I, it to me, it wasn't a
1: what uh, STAP? Yeah, really. I think it's kind uh, like, of like it's a the badge guy of that honor. Never went. What? Well, it's like say, say, so says the guy that never went.
0: How I many guess. hours did you have on the area?
1: I walked. I walked uh, same as you. I walked like like somewhere in the teens, less than twenty. I, I yeah. did get a slug that never came down, which I couldn't believe. Um yeah. you know, which was pretty cool. I should have gotten like fifteen hours or something, and I didn't get anything. It's just got kind of lost in the paperwork, lost in the shuffle, which was pretty cool. Um God bless. And you walked how many hours?
0: Around twelve. But like I you know, guys I hung out with on the rugby team, Chris Harlan, I
1: should have had a lot more just by killed by association. Oh my god, Hog! Hog is my company, you know, right? He was an yeah, F one. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. We were just telling the stories about him the other day about uh, we went, Army Navy went down, to, we went down to <laughs> my, my cousin's fraternity house and, uh, we're staying at my cousin's fraternity house at Penn and he was in, and, and all the brothers were out. Uh, you know, like most of them had gone home for Christmas and we show up and, and, uh, we we basically trashed our fraternity house and there's all these there's all these young girls that came to the came to our place. They're from the University of Delaware, right? They came up from the University of Delaware to Penn and they're doing some road trip, like coming around and visiting different fraternities. And so they show up at our door, like, Hey, we're like whatever, delta, delta, delta. And we're like, Oh, come on in, like pretending like we're fraternity brothers when we're just, you know, a bunch of cadets like there for Army Navy, right? And then it becomes apparent that they're going to leave because they're just here for like an hour and then they're going to go someplace else. And so um, <laughs> F1 F one was Honorary Kai Sai. Kai Sai Brothers.
0: Harking back to what you said, it would have been good for not just you, but for us if we would have had a local down when we were at prep school with a little bit of local knowledge about where to go because a lot of it was just figuring it out. We had guys from Idaho and uh, Ohio working their way. I'd been in New Jersey only as a little kid. So, um, but, and Jamie, can I ask a little bit about where we are progress wise? And I've, this was not a plan from you to me, but how are we doing towards our goal? What we need to raise by, um, uh, by our 30th.
1: So we're, we're actually dollar wise. We're well on our way. Um, so, you know, we have a goal of a million five, uh, to raise by our 30th reunion. We are like just shy of a million one right now. Uh, you know, with with a little about two years left to go, um, and you
0: had a participation goal in mind. Where yeah, are we? at that's the, percentage the main of
1: class? That's the main thing. So, you know, I would love for us to be at ninety one percent of our of our giving of our class uh, of our of our classmates that um, you know are are still with us. Ninety one percent. And uh, what's well,
0: typical, Jamie? Like, roughly, what does what is, a what, what is class normally typically get?
1: Typically, classes see between 60 and 70%. And we okay. are already at about 60, um, 61 or 62%. So, you know, it, it, AOG says we're far and away like one of the best in terms of participation rates, and we're doing great, and we're well on our way to making the dollar goal. Well, what I really want to be able to do is I want to be able to say we're the most generous in academy history from a participation rate. Uh, the highest participation rate ever was 88%. And that was like the class of, I think, 60, 68. They got 88% participation rate. Um, well, we, by the way, these, are, these statistics are a little bit flawed, right? Because, unfortunately, like as classes get older, like class of 1933, they got one grad. He gave money on the All-Academy or at 100%, right? So it's one out right. of one. But, um, you know, we have, um, about, uh, I I think like 800 and 840 living, living, uh, graduate classmates. And so 91%, uh, but what it basically comes down to is like, there's like, if there's like one person per company that doesn't give or one or two people per company, uh, we'll, we'll meet our goal. Right. So, and so. Um, it means that you got to get your your company at uh, something over 91 percent like if generally if there's there's 26 uh, 26 or 28 uh, classmates per, per company so if you get 24 out of 26 classmates that's 92 uh, percent so you can have two people that don't give and um, by
0: regiment Jamie who's doing what right now who's your first and who, who needs the most help in each of the four regiments?
1: Well, uh, First Reg, as you would expect, uh, who, who leads the way in almost everything, they also lead the way in class giving. Uh, so First Reg is, is far and away doing the best. But um, And the best company— waterboards
0: did they waterboard you guys in the division? How did that all happen <laughs> over there? What, what,
1: what led to that? Well, they're, they're, they're helped by two, by two companies that are front runners. So company F1, the Mighty Mighty F1, is at 100% giving rate. Uh, So that helps a lot. And then A1 is at like 79%. So they're, they're also pretty good. So I actually don't have my stats exactly uh, up in front of me. Otherwise I'd be able to rattle them off a little bit better. But um, you know, the idea should be that we, we also have our lowest uh, giving company, company G1 uh, is uh, also in first reg. They're only at about uh, one third, like 31% or 33% of their other class. So we need to get on them and get them cracking. I think that And Jamie,
0: uh, are you including what we did for the 25th or is this is this fresh giving since the 25th fresh, or since we started?
1: This is fresh giving since the 25th. Okay. So, um and so uh you know, so what I did recently which uh was interesting. I I emailed the classmates who have not given, right? Uh who, for those who I have who I have emails for. And so I just said, "Hey, if, if there's a reason why you haven't given, if it's just because you forgot or because you just haven't had, gotten around to doing it, please do it. But if you have a reason that you're not given, you know, let me know and I'll I'll quit bugging you. You know, and I got some people. I got I got some I got some mail back on that. I got some people saying, "Hey, listen, I got no interest in in, in getting emails from you in the future or being connected at all." And I was like, "Wow, like that's all right." I mean, I I, I I'm not going to dig any further. But if there's anything I could do to help you uh in any way, let me know. And uh in fact I got one classmate of ours who's you know fell on some tough times and I was helping them through some um business planning and some and some other things and you know he committed, he said, I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna definitely give when I'm when I'm able to do it. And so you know, we don't ask the pe- people to give any like there's no specific dollar amount. If you want to give nineteen dollars and ninety one cents, that's cool. You know, just get on the scoreboard. Like just you know, do what you can. I mean West Point's done a lot for everybody. Um, you know, regardless of your personal circumstances, if you could do something, I would greatly appreciate it so that we can, when we give that big check in, in 2021, uh, I would love for us to be able to say, like, this is the most generous class in academy history that we have given the most of anybody. That's our goal. That's my, that's what I think we can do. It's a great call. And so you kind of, you're the one who uh, kind of twisted my arm and made me take this thing over because you, you, you did it prior to me, right?
0: Well yeah. I mean I was at our twentieth, I guess, and I was sitting <clears throat> with Rob Spignessy and L C Lee from A three and Holly West said to me, Anne, did you see that number that they just flashed up? And and I said, Yeah, how we like I had no benchmark for it, Jamie. And and she said, We're not like 92s far outstripping us and they're doing a little bit better job. One of the things that happened is they're getting everybody to sign up now before they leave. So they're getting them in for like, the, you know, the $91 a quarter or something just so they're on the tape and they don't lose track of them. And, you know, look, we're the first class that had computers on our desk, right? we got issued. So they're, they're a little bit more tightly yoked to the Academy because of social media and the connectivity, but we tried to, you know, I, I, think I shared most of what I thought worked with us to try to get one or two people because I think in all 36 companies, there's not one company that does it best. I think like Brian Melton does a nice job. Matt Lewis does a nice job in A1 where they try to get together as a company. I know B3 does it. I know F4 does it. Uh, my company has tried in and around Army, Navies, But these other folks, I think, do it away from some big event. And I think within each company there tends to be at least two clicks of people. You know, you didn't hang out with everybody in your company. Um, you're you're a little bit more likable than me, Jamie. Maybe everybody in your company liked you, but or, or the opposite. You know, there's right there's just segments, right? And I, I say it a little tongue in cheek, but so it's I think it's always easier if a friend reaches out to you. And I, I guess I would challenge those that are listening in tonight if you could consider posting on the Facebook page and just say, Hey, I'm in for the $19 that Jamie asked for the, or, uh, you know, I'll just say, Jamie, I'm going to write you another check for 1991, uh, you know, $1,991, Write Us a check and I'll reach back out to my A3 company mates. But it, it's always better if you get the phone call, it's easier to be rude to that guy you didn't know in F1 and tell him not to call you. But if it's, those of you who are listening just to commit to reach out to one or two folks and ask them if they would, you know, contribute. I just ask them if they have contributed to start the dialogue. And I think Jamie, can you just recirculate the link on what, what the, the give the 91 at the AOG?
1: Yeah, I'll do that. I mean, the one thing you can just remember to, 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 to do it is it's um it's a uh, West point slash give to 91. That's, that's the uh, URL. Um, I'm actually working with a text marks company a text text uh company where you can actually text and get the link back but I don't have that set up yet but um yeah and I'll I'll will put it into the email page and and in terms of seeing who has given this is the, that's the class uh donor wall or honor wall that comes out they they're about to go out AOG is about to remail the list of who has donated so um you'll see who who has donated and then you can kind of do the math and figure out who has not but Um, you know, again, I mean, we're not looking to shame anybody into it. I mean, if there's a reason why you're not giving, you know, I mean, um, I'm not, I'm not going to, not going to twist anybody's arm too much. I mean, I, I, I'm sad to think that somebody may not want to give because they've got some kind of a negative, negative impression or a negative thought. I mean, the one thing though that I'll say, I was at the, um, the class leaders conference. I think that I haven't seen this articulated back, but this is a common thing, which is This is, you know, Congress's responsibility. The Department of Defense's responsibility to allocate money to West Point. We do not want to create a perverse incentive where we raise capital as a graduation, as a set of graduates, and then we offset what ought to be tax-based dollars coming to West Point. Uh, West Point's gotten very, very smart about how to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right. So they've got these, you know, different sort of buckets of funding. Uh, there's this, there's the you know these discretionary funds that are allocated to the soup, and none of that stuff goes to facilities. None of it goes to anything that would be otherwise expected to be paid for with uh, DoD budgets, and um, so that's not the case. These are always about margin of excellence and enrichment programs for the Corps of Cadets. That's exactly what we what we um, um, are paying for, and by us endowing the Army Cyber Institute with a chair which is a three-star, three-star general, uh, retired, uh, it enables that person to kind of um, occupy the ground in between the DOD and the civilian world and to, um, and to craft these partnerships with industry uh, in order to bring in more dollars for the Cyber Institute.
0: Yeah, and I would say, look, you said that really well. This is margin of excellence, stuff. and I would say, given the position that I have as the United Secretary of the Army, we picked a gift as a collective where we're, we're shooting in front of the duck. This is where we're going. And the army cyber is part of the middle of the fight that we're pivoting to. Everything's going machine learning and algorithms. And, um, you know, our, our class has its fingerprints all over that center, both from a participation standpoint and a funding standpoint. And I do think that your notion of there is no gift that's too small and getting really wide participation. I mean, some, I know there's still some out there that don't know that we've set up in, you know, a branch, the cyber branch. And the first, that was the first branch set up in a couple decades, you know, followed in quick order by this Army Futures is now a branch as well. But what they were doing is they were commissioning, I guess, maybe two years ago is the first time, two or three, that they commissioned directly into cyber. Before that, they were pulling folks from Intel and from Signal to stand this branch up. And some of these kids, I mean, uh, unbelievable what they're doing. They clearly, you heard about my academic uh, record. They weren't tapping me when I was a plebe, or young. But some of these kids are identifying earlier on. They're taking them into a different track. And I think a full third of the cadets now are doing some overseas assignment while they're there as a cadet. And their whole the set of experience is much broader. And if we think about the future fight, a lot of it's a cultural one you know, it's the notion of when does kinetic fight end and when, and how do we fight in these non, in, you know, non, non-contact battlefields. And I think we want as an institution, our alma mater to be in the middle of that. So, um, I appreciate you continue to push it. Jane.
1: So let's shift gears here a little bit. And we've, we've talked about the fundraising stuff, uh, I think, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, Tell me about, let's, let's think about, like, in terms of the arc of the podcast, we talked about the here and now, we talked we talked about, you know, the pre-West Point, how you got to West Point, the prep school, let's talk about the Army and your early career, and what kind of brought you to where you are now. So, you were commissioned as, a, as an engineer officer, right? I was. You I were think,
0: a couple doors down from yeah, yeah. Leonard
1: OBC. OBC was crazy. I mean, I, I think, I, in hindsight, I, I wish I could go back and have a better time than I did, I was just so fixated on the fact that there was, like, nothing to do. Uh, I mean, we worked out a lot. We got ready for ranger school, whatever. But it was, like, just so goddamn boring as a, as a young single officer there, I thought.
0: Yeah, well, and, you know, they had to thrown to school six days a week because we were in the middle of the fight. There was three million mines on the ground, and they thought... You know, I remember Dave Palmer shaking our hand, Fred Gordon, going, thank you for doing this. And I thought, what did I do? <laughs> like, they think we're going in to replace people. They're going to be dead, you know. And, you know, they doubled the strength of the Corps of Engineers, or I might not have made it. I think you had a more select choice than I did. They bounced me three times. So I did uh, OBC, <laughs> I did airborne school, aerosol while I was a cadet. Um, I did scout platoon leader course. I did the rock training with you early. And then somebody from branch called and said, hey, lieutenant, you need to get to your unit. And Mike Carr was laughing at me because I had done all of this training for, for Rob getting up and Jim. We got up early there. It was freezing. It was warm. And then it was freezing while we were there. And for the ranger, you know, orientation program, doing a lot of running. And then I went to my unit and I did a platoon command and I had a second platoon command. And then Lieutenant Mike Carr showed up with this shiny ranger tab and they made him the assistant mess hall officer. That was his primary job. And I already had two one block platoon commands, and then I got a company command as a first lieutenant because my battalion commander was worried about his report card. And he had seen me do okay enough that he left six branch qualified captains back in Bamberg, Germany, when I took Charlie Company down to Kuwait. And so I got to go do that. Had a bunch of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis working for me. They were indentured servants to the Kuwaitis because, as we know, there's no middle class over there, there's the elite and the Bedouins. and um, and I got a phone call about um, the the voluntary release, and I found a role for myself in the uh, around out battalion in the Connecticut National Guard. And I did two company commands there, and then a uh, company command in the the reserves. And then I gave a talk as the youngest grad at Founders Day, and I met um, I met somebody from. Staff at West Point, and they asked me to run the Malos in Connecticut. There was no grads involved in the military academy liaison officer program at the time.
1: And you know, I did that
0: there. Go
1: ahead. I, I was just thinking about because I just was recently at the um, at the class leaders conference. The Malo the Malo program basically imploded uh, during the last um, you know basic last fifteen years. Uh, yeah. They were down to only nine Malos total for the entire the entire U.S. Uh, and they're now slowly rebuilding it. There's there's a lieutenant colonel, she's class of 95, I think, that is in charge of the whole thing. And she's kind of rebuilding it back up. But it really just kind of lost, uh, it's, lost its momentum. I and mean, they, they're still very much dependent upon like a civilian field force. But the MELO, which is the Military Academy Liaison Program, which is where you could be a reserve officer and you could get points toward retirement, um, that basically imploded and was almost disintegrated altogether uh, in the last like five years.
0: Yeah. And so I went from being a melo to a, what they call a polo. And, and it was really just for the civilians that actually had a little bit of situational awareness about what you needed and didn't really care about the point side of it, but still wanted to just go help and work in high schools, And so I did that for a bit, but I'd already started working. And but one of the, the, the transitional, transformative transitional moments for me was going and giving the youngest grad talk. And I did it at Founders Day in New York City in 90, either 94 or 95. And I did it in New York city and then I did it in Connecticut and then I did it up in Massachusetts on three straight weekends. And I felt like, look, I'm getting out. I, I want to figure out what I want to do. I need to put myself in an environment where there's a lot of people like me there. And you know, I've spent a lot of time with our classmate, Matt Lewis and talking about how he started to sort out what he's telling folks in transition and, my lessons learned through that, Jamie, were I gave a talk. As the youngest grad, I figured my talk needed to be short. That was the number one rule. Number two a rule was pay attention to rule number one. So I figured I could either talk as a young grad, I had to make it interesting before the old grad got up there and you, they'd grant him a wider license. But So I said, you know, look, I could talk about our education, training, or character building. I think I'm just going to talk about character building. Heck, I'll just talk about our first day. They walked 1,158 of us down to Eisenhower Hall. The first captain, the King of beasts, is up on stage, and he asked the following groups of people to stand up. All those of you that were valedictorian in your high school class, I don't know, like 100-something people stood up. And all those of you that were captain of our RC Athletic Team in high school, please stand up. And, you know, or 500 more people stood up. And then all of those of you that were the president of your senior body, you know, your class in high school, stand up. Well, another 145 people stand up. And I I figured at that point, the only question left was Anthony DeToto, would you like to stand (laughs) up? Right. And we all felt like that at some point in our cadet career, you made that point. We go through this very uniform experience where they want to make sure that we all embrace the suck, embrace the suck. And, I like that didn't necessarily bother me. I and mean, they played a little song by a guy named Lee Greenwood, if I remember right, calling him, I'm proud to be an American. And I saw everybody get up on their feet and were screaming. And I thought, man, these are my people. This is where I want to be. Like, I want to be part of this, whatever this is right now. And as I shared that story on success weekends, a couple things happened. One is I met Mike, um, Mike Daly, who is a Medal of Honor winner, class 43X. I met Buddy Buca, I met Hal Moore, I met Rookie Mayor Rudy Giuliani, I met a guy named Bill Murdy, uh, who was responsible for the turnaround of of a hotel fair and he's become a great mentor for me. But all those people, save the mayor, offered to sit with me and help me figure out my transition. And on the second weekend, I was up in Connecticut, and I remember there was a 72 grad, and he was just, he worked at Sikorsky, or one of the big contractors that was yoked to the DOD uh, you know, war machine, if you will. And this is, these are 90, this is 94, 95. So these are the the years where we're downsizing the military and Connecticut is really tied to it. And he walked up to me after the stage and he handed me his resume and he said, son, you seem like you really got your stuff together. I'm hoping you could help me. And I thought, interesting. I would love to help you, sir. You know, I just went from making 14 grand a year in the military to making 29 grand, I think. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll try to figure out who I can put you in touch with. And I thought to myself, I don't ever want to try to drink from that well that I haven't contributed to. And I want to see what I can do to help folks figure this out. Cause we went to school with a lot of pointy headed engineers and a lot of them aren't really good at connecting with people, Jamie. And you're, you're one of the rare bird, I think, technical engineer types that made his living that way that actually likes people an awful lot as well and i think our classmates got better at it over time but i've had people say no to me i you know i've failed a lot and i think it comes a little bit easier to me i don't like it any more than anybody else does but i've had to get back up a, a little bit more than your average bear and so i think in those three continue those weekends i learned something that until recently i couldn't put words around and and really what it comes down to and you know 20 30 years later is when we we're in the military and we we're getting ready to get out, most of us didn't know exactly what we wanted to do next, but we were all almost to a person, pretty sure that it wasn't going to be as important as what we just did. And purpose matters.
1: That's deep, man. I'm, 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 I'm hanging on to every word you're just saying. So, uh, yeah, purpose matters and I think making making the most of, of every moment matters, you know, and you and I were talking a little bit on the on the um on the pre call about this too. And I'm looking here at this uh one section about our fallen classmates that, that you that you um remember well and um you know Tommy McTeague and Hags, Muth, Rusty, Bill Hecker, and Shannon, Shannon Beebe. Which 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 of them do you think of um the most when you think about your time at West Point and people that were impactful to you. You still there?
0: Yeah, Jamie. Um, I apparently hit the mute button while you're talking. The, I would say probably most would be Shannon Beebe. And you know, that adage that nobody remembers who finished the second. Well, the, for the president of our class, I ran against Mike Ash, my prep school classmate, and Ed Sizena, my battalion buddy. Right, so I I wanted to beg each of them to get out of the race because there's I probably I didn't have a shot anyway against Shannon. He was so articulate and really understood politics better than most of us. But Shannon was the first sort of deep ruse about finishing second to something that I wanted, and it was a good thing, right? It it's a little bit like Avis. We try a little bit harder, you know? I, I, and so when we say fallen, I think it was just a shock to all of us. It was a shock to all of us that Channing got a little bit quiet after graduation. Cause he was always ever present and always had a smile on his face. And my company mate, Kevin Krieger was the only one that could come close to doing. they called it the Arkansas hoop Like the, they had this little political rhetoric chance that they, they knew, uh, but they had done boys, State a number of different things. And, um, that was a one, you know, and of course, like Tommy McTeague and his dad used to come to our rugby matches, and I remember playing the South side Irish and let's just say that things got a little bit spun up outside the scrum, and the ball went the other way, and uh, Mr. McTeague was there just screaming, rooting for a little battle that was going on between me and one other guy from and it, that the other guy didn't do so well at the end of this little battle. that nobody could see most people were fifty meters the other side but all, you know, like always a smile on his face. And I remember him telling me at the Army-Navy game at Rutgers about what was going on with him and just thinking, no way, you know, like way too young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, I remember Tyner maybe because he was one of the first. I don't know if I can put that on the list. But it's uh, – and then Bill Hecker because he went in harm's way. So, again, another B3 guy. And I just think – but what I think about a fair amount, and you and I talked a little bit about this, is – When I lost my, uh, I lost my younger brother a couple of years ago Mm. and you know, I, people have varying degrees of what spirituality is, but I just think about the family behind uh, Bill Hecker and Shannon Beebe and Rusty Davidson and, and and, and the impact on them not being there. You talking about you wanting to optimize all your time, Jamie Schleck on your, on the sideline, watching your son play AU basketball. And them always looking out into the crowd and not seeing their dad or their mom there for them. And, you know, with my little brother, I remember looking at my parents. They, my parents split when, when I was a, a young teenager. And I remember watching my mom and my dad talk to each other for the first time in 30 years at the foot of my brother's casket, as the priest in the Catholic Church talked about, and the, the, the God who gave of his only begotten son and seeing in one image, my, uh, my, my brother's casket and my parents and thinking about that, what it's like to lose a child. So when I reflect on loss and given you, know, when you're in the, the best part of my job is I get to help people solve problems. And the worst part is we get invited to all the funerals and we help as these families transition from one generation to the next. And so that's, the death is ever present. The more people, you know, the more you're going to hear about it. Um, so I just, I love the fact that when I think about our experience, um, you know, I think of West Point is a, a, founded in 1802, 217 years of history, unhampered by progress in many ways. Okay. So the rituals that we have, the grip hands part of things, the, the long gray line piece of it, you, you know, that there's somebody else there that has your back and, when my brother passed, it was, it was literally similar timing to when they were running the leadership conference. You just came back from and unbeknownst to me, uh, you know, Pete got showed up and John Cisco showed up. I hope his mom's feeling a little bit better. I know he was supposed to be on with you tonight. And Fitzy Brian Fitzgerald took a, uh, took a cab up or took an Uber, of course, up from New York city to Connecticut and Obi Faro jumped on a plane and came out from Texas. And so, you know, we, there's lots of things we can pick. We always can't pick our family, but having the sort of brotherhood, the brothers and sisters that we have in our class around us is pretty powerful. And, you know, as I work with families that steward money across generations, you know, they're all once people have all the money in the world, they're trying to figure out how they can live 150 years. Well, one of the things that everyone's fighting is, you know, cancer and Alzheimer's. And the only thing that they're showing yeah, they'll make some medical advance, but the thing that's really important to the fight against Alzheimer's that they're showing more and more supported data on is your sense of community. You know, the fact that you get you're getting out and talking to people more. That's the way to keep yourself in check against that fight. It's an enemy that we don't fully have our arms around yet, but that's a good that's a good stab at it. So didn't mean to digress, but I think it's important.
1: Well, I think you are you you have been a master at uh and networking, maintaining, you know, relationships you mentioned before. I mean, you know, Bill Murdy and Buddy Buca and, uh, you know, Stan McChrystal is another guy that you've been connected to. And, um, you know, I mean, Ryan McCarthy and, you know, our classmates, people years ahead of us and years before us. Um, and, um, and so anyway, I, I'm just, I'm always intrigued by your ability to, uh, to maintain that, that large network. It's, it's, it's a, uh, the only one who comes close to rivaling you, I think. Um, who, who would you think I would say uh, that comes close, not our classmate, somebody who come close to rivaling you in terms of main, maintaining a, uh, a long, deep network of people? We both um. know Murdy, Dan Rice, Franz Hong, Sean Olds. Sean Olds, yeah. Sean Olds. Sean, o- Sean Olds is a yeah, 94 grad. And by the way, <laughs> the joke is, you know that picture, the, the old grad podcast picture with General with General Schwarzkopf drinking beer, in that picture is young smack. Um, <laughs> Sean Olds is in that picture. I am like, how'd you get yeah. it in this picture? He's, yeah. so, he goes, I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. You know. So. Well,
0: one of the things I've found over the years, and thank you, Jamie, but uh, I think of of, um, connectivity is important. Networking people, some people feel like, ah, it's a four letter word. Ah, I only have to do that if I'm not good at my trade. Uh, you know, what I found over the years is having mentors in different decades of life is really important. So my SAT word, avuncular, uh, kind uncle, my other one is, is thinking about, what's the right way to say this? How do I, I, orthogonal, how do I want to look at an issue through your lens? Think about a fish in a bowl and then picking up that bowl and spinning it around. Um, you know, I never ran a chemical company. If, if I wanted to understand something about not just the aesthetics and the supply chain and the financials, I'd pick up the phone and call you. And if you're not the guy, you're going to know 10 of the guys that can help you yeah, with I'll put, that. I'll
1: put you through you know, somebody else, not me. <laughs> right.
0: But, but but you get the point. You're going to know you're the hub yeah. to those folks for me. Yeah. And that's the way I'm not very linear. I've been able to leverage that. So I wind up being the first phone call for people where I, there's nothing they can really do for me. And they always ask, hey, Ant, how can I ever reciprocate that? And I've always said, hey, look, man, when you're in a position to do this 20 years from now, do it for somebody else. Because the Hal Moores and the Buddy Bukas and the Mike Daly's did it for me. The Bill Murdies really did it for me. And they do it, right? You do it for somebody because you see a little bit of yourself in them in some way. And I look at it like, Uh, You know, people could say karma or paying it forward or serendipity, or the Catholics call it providence. Who cares? It's the right thing to do. In my mind, it's the cadet prayer. It's the you know doing look working for the whole truth um, when when, you know when that when the whole truth can be won, not set not settling on the half, and doing the right thing above and beyond what's expected of you, so that um, you know I'm in I'm in a business that's highly commoditized, so you have to do something. Because otherwise, you sound like Charlie Brown's teacher or his mom.
1: So, so you know, let's close on this. As I told you, I mean, we would have no shortage of things to talk about, and time would go by so quickly. Like we've got this prequel yeah. note. There's a there's a bunch a bunch of things we didn't even touch on. But to to, to this idea about helping people, networking, uh, connecting with grads, tell me about this 1836 thing you got going on. What is the story with with that?
0: Sure. So about two years ago, 1836 is the year in which Texas went independent. And there's a group called Bunker Labs, And Jamie and I are fortunate to be in this network, kind of our version of skull and bones, let's call it that. It's invite only. We don't care who your parents are. It's Navy and we'll call it mostly Navy and Army. It's Air Force because, as most of you know, pilots don't do group activities well. So there are diversity play. They get really concerned if they're in a big room and they're not in charge and talking. Uh, Jamie, you know how you know when there's a pilot in the room?
1: Oh, just wait. He'll
0: tell you. (laughs) So this notion of 1836 was really born out of a bunch of millennials on the campus of Rice, which is a really fine school down here in Houston. It's at the intersection of mosquito and humidity. Uh, There's that, right? So not every New Yorker, bridge and tunnel, New Jersey person wants to be down here. But they said to me, Anthony, look, we understand, you know, a fair amount about raising money and, you know, family offices. We're really good at making PowerPoints. I think they all went through the cat cube course, Jamie, like they can make a PowerPoint thing. And, but they couldn't figure out how to get people to part with non-dilutive capital so they could get a bunker lab set up down here. And some big bank put bunker in place and they put it in 15 different cities, a hundred thousand a city. And then they paused.
1: And, and uh, by the way, I, just, I need to interrupt you. Fitzy takes yeah. uh Fitzy's taking a, uh, uh, takes issue with your joke there about pilots.
0: Well, I meant, I meant <laughs> six wing pilots. <fit. laughs> then.
1: Not Fitzy, right? Yeah. No,
0: not Fitzy. Yeah. Rotary Rotary people are fine. I gotcha. They do group activities better. Yeah. Um, but so, Jamie, it was, uh, I, said to, I said to them, so what do you need to put a bunker lab here in Houston? They said, we need 35 grand. And I said, all right, 1836 is bigger than 35. Um, and we'll call it 1836 paying homage to the year in which Texas went independent. We'll call it 1836 Veterans, and that's the website. If you Google it, you'll see there was an article written in the Houston Chronicle and the Austin Statesman and the San Antonio paper on 4th of July about how we're trying to be this forcing function. And I use the acronym FISH, right? It's back to our military roots of using acronyms. But FISH, F-I-S-H. F is financial, balance sheet capital. And that's really not the purpose of what we're doing. But we may want to serve as a beachhead because there's 8 to 10 organizations that are providing capital to startups. And some of them are led by vets. Some of them are led by patriots who are empathetic to vets. Some of them just invest in academy grads. Some of them are 50 or 60% of what they're doing is with a military veteran. The I is for intellectual. Who should be your co-founder? Who's going to redboard something for you? Who's going to keep you out of your own way? So the S is social. Where are your clients going to come from? Can you produce something for 50 cents and sell it for a dollar? Because if you can't, you don't have a a business. You know, if, if, if if you're confused by... Uh, eyeballs matter. Take a peek at what's happened to the valuation on WeWork right now. Um, and then the H is human. Who are those employees going to be? And then put that fish, right? We normally do that in a boat. Think of a V that V would be vendors. What about buying from military run businesses as well? And what are we trying to do? We're just trying to create collisions, right? I call this, this networking effect. How can I, I know who I know, but Jamie doesn't necessarily know who I know. How can I put him in touch with other people that can help him on his mission to end veteran homelessness, right? Who do I know in the city of Houston and what's their definition for that, right? So how do we create these collisions? And so 1836 was born out of a conversation over beers on the campus of Rice University. And I said, all right, I'm going to put $5,000 of non-dilutive capital on the table and I'm going to raise $1,000 from folks so they can't say to me, ah, well, five thousand is a lot of money. I'm gonna say, look, I'm putting five in. There's no hope of a return on this. We're putting this in to set this up here, and I got in uh, two and a half weeks. I raised fifty-four thousand dollars with the help of a couple friends, uh, mostly veterans, mostly Estonians, but some guys in other places, and a number of the first wave guys, Jamie, that just said, Totes, if you're gonna do this. I'm gonna do it with you. I'm interested in this sort of experiment science project." We gave thirty-five thousand a bunker. It brought them to Houston. Chase J.P. Morgan Foundation came in over the top and then provided a 100000 but not the bunker. They gave it to this organization that we're part of here called Combined Arms, which is 43 different veteran service organizations all under one roof. And we're trying to be intentional. Eventually, the Wounded Warriors of the World that funded Combined Arms and the city of Houston that generously donated a building to house them, eventually we're going to have to be self-sustaining. So we're trying to create this ethos of hey, veterans are smart and good. And at the same time, Jamie, the irony of it is it's a little bit of a throat punch because I think there's far too many people that should be exos that try to be the CEO. And most of our brothers and sisters, like me, are way better as being the number two at being an entrepreneur or a change agent within a bigger platform where they don't have full P&L responsibilities. So my view is if I can talk them out of it early, they're not gonna waste everybody's capital on the back end. And we're in the process of splitting this organization in two. There'll be a part that's going to do the continue on seed funding. And I'm just going to run the part of it that does mentoring because I'm at a big bank and they don't want me doing anything that even has the hint of impropriety or selling away. And I understand and respect that.
1: That's great, man. And so, uh, so what is the website again? 1836veterans.org? Dot com. Dot com. .com. Okay, so so go to that, check that check that out, see what Anthony's up to and um and uh your your great life of uh, mentoring and and helping veterans and through transition and also trying to figure out uh, how they can optimize their impact in the business world. Any final thoughts Anthony because we're uh we're right at about time. Just want to just give you the um the de- the um departing thoughts that you can leave with our classmates.
0: Um look, I, I, a couple things Matt and Matt Lewis has written a great book. Doug McCormick's written a good book on financial uh, literacy in and around the family and the military family. Those are great gifts to give out to folks. Um, and I would also just say broadly, um, take it, it's worth getting some advice from someone as it relates to your financial affairs. We all think we're the smartest person in the room. Um, your network is your net worth. I'll
1: leave you at that. Okay. Anthony Toto, thanks so much. Stick around on the line here. We're going to use our outro here and then uh, I'll come back to you. But uh, classmates, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, and we'll be back October 6th with uh, the next episode and uh, duty shall be done.
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.